As you may have noticed, the title of the lesson that I've selected this morning is but two words drawn from that text in Titus chapter 2, verse 1, sound doctrine. As Paul made address of some magnificent thoughts and rather profound ones as well to that young son in the faith of his Titus, he shared a number of things in that little three-chapter book. And today we shall select a few from those in that opening chapter. This past week, as we read together some of these particular letters in the New Testament, we read not only this particular book of Titus, but we also read in 1 Timothy as well. There will be a time when some of our thoughts today will also be drawn from that reading taken from that book as well. I would invite you to consider the world in which religion, it seems, has ever found itself. There are those who utilize the things about them to teach what God has not delivered. And they, in fact, assert that which is not the truth of God, and yet Paul admonished and warned Titus in regard to that as well. Let me direct your attention, if I might, to just a few of the thoughts found in the opening chapter of Titus. Verse number 10 says, For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. Titus found himself laboring in this location, and there were forces, influential ones at that, that were asserting and teaching what was not that which was the revealed and inspired will of God. The warning, of course, to Titus would also bring us to verse 16 of that opening chapter. They profess that they know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable and disobedient and unto every good work reprobate. This is not a positive description, is it? A description of some who claimed to know God and claimed to be serving Him, and yet they were reprobates, disobedient folk. And in so doing, you may notice he says, they are disobedient. I would invite you to think with me this morning, somewhat briefly admittedly, about some of the attributes of this which is sound doctrine. You may notice the very next word Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2, verse 1, after comments like those we've just made, but speak thou the things which become sound doctrine. Titus, unlike these who are motivated by any number of things, and unlike these who are disobedient, who are abominable, who are reprobates, you speak sound doctrine. You use a thus saith the Lord, and you employ the power and might of God's inspired Word in your proclamation. You'll notice today as we at least think a little bit about that, we will in fact very much focus our attention on the nature of four words. Four words. Amazingly, I think we'd all readily agree that every word of God is tried. Proverbs 30 verses 5 and 6. Every single word was put there by the Holy Spirit for the purpose of conveying that which was the intent and will of God. Wasn't it true that God, in fact, directly told Jeremiah, I have put my words in thy mouth, Jeremiah 1 verse 9. He told Ezekiel in Ezekiel 3 verses 3 and 4 that on that occasion, Ezekiel, you go take my words and speak to the house of Israel. And today we still stand strongly on the mighty standard of the Word of God. But yet there are times when there are those who take that Word and pervert it, those who take that Word and use it for their own selfish devices. When you and I think about that, again, we'll look at four words. The first one to which we'll turn our attention is in fact the very one that occurs in the midst of this chapter. Might I ask that we at least give thought 
beginning in verse number 5 of Titus chapter 1. And there shall be a word that occurs, but it has caused no small amount of difficulty in some ways throughout, throughout the decades. To Titus, I'll begin reading in verse 4. Mine own son, after the common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. For this cause left I thee in Crete, that thou shouldest set in order the things that are wanting, and ordain elders in every city, as I had appointed thee. And immediately we notice that Paul has employed this word that our English translators have written as the word elder. I would invite you to consider at least a few moments about the character of this word elder and some of the thoughts that have caused no little amount of difficulty in regard to it throughout the ages past. You'll notice at the very outset of that slide, first of all, we might take careful note of the underlying word from which the translators chose this word elder. That word literally translates a word that at its most basic level means old or old age. It had to do with those who had arrived at an element in maturity by virtue of, among other things, their age. And they could thus serve in a capacity like in Genesis 24.1 and in 1 Samuel 12 verse 2. Some Old Testament considerations where that same word appears in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You might remember those two scenes characterized circumstances in which there were leaders amongst the people of Israel. And they were recognized as those older gentlemen with wisdom and knowledge and experience such that they not only in that way, but also had, of course, a life that led others to appreciate a leadership capacity in them. You'll notice even beyond that, that idea of the leadership that goes with the employment of that word elder. I would invite you to notice Numbers 11.24 again in the Old Testament. There we have, again, a set of individuals called elders and recognized, not just as a general member of the children of Israel, but these were the ones responsible for making some decisions. They were the ones to which others looked for leadership and guidance and the propriety of choosing to do what was right. Leadership. Beyond that, we might well appreciate our principal interest, I'm sure, is not so much those Old Testament appreciations, but what about the New Testament? What does the New Testament teach us about elders? The word in Greek that's translated elder in this very passage is the word presbyteros. And you may notice that word occurs some 66 times. And it referred at the most basic level again to a gentleman who had some age, but who was one that presided or exerted some leadership over the assemblies of that first century era? Presbyteros. You may notice I've given several additional pieces of information drawn from some of those 66 occurrences. First of all, you'll notice it's translated frequently as the word elder, just as it is here. I've listed 1 Timothy 4.14 as a reminder that Paul wrote to Timothy and said that the hands of the presbytery, the noun form, of course, of a plurality of that consideration, presbyteros. 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 19 highlight again these elders and the opportunity that they exerted as leaders and as guides for the assembly. In Titus 1, verse 5, Paul here said, "...ordain elders in every city." 
The congregations as they existed in that day and time were such that it was the plan and will of God that elders would exist in their midst, guiding and leading them according to that which was the will of God. You may observe even beyond that, 1 Timothy 3.1, again in our reading for this past week, highlights that there is the office attached to the eldership. It is an office. It's a church office, meaning that those who aspire and who attain to that level of appointment occupy an office that is a part of the explicit will and Word of God. What a blessing it is for there to be those men who meet the qualifications set forth in the New Testament and who thus have that responsibility of leading and guiding that congregation according to the ways that you and I shall study today. Perhaps as we look beyond that, might I ask you to observe in Acts 14, near the close of that chapter, an additional statement concerning the appointment of these elders is found. There it says, appoint elders in every church. Now, we realize in the Titus case, it said every city, but remember in that day and time when it seems there were relatively few congregations, perhaps that's not an unusual thing to consider in every city. But when Paul gave notice again on that first and second missionary journey, there it was extremely important that they be appointed in every church, in every congregation. We have no authority for the elders in one congregation to exert influence upon those in another or upon another congregation. It might well be in light of that. You'll notice again about this concept of old or old age. Among the qualifications listed, explicitly it says, not a novice, 1 Timothy 3.6. That is, a new convert is not to be appointed as, as an elder. It requires that level of maturity to carry out those responsibilities and duties. It would not be appropriate for Paul expressly says that he might be lifted up by the characteristics of arrogance and pride of the devil and thus do far, far much harm. This concept of presbyteros, the thought of these elders, maybe takes us to some additional thoughts as well. And here is where we arrive at some of those matters that have caused some discussion. For you see, there is more than one word in the New Testament descriptive of these men that we have heretofore described as elders. I would ask you to notice that another word, and you may even notice it in verse 7, two verses later. Verse 6, to pick up our reading as we left it off a moment ago, it says, "...if any be blameless..." The husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of right or unruly. For a bishop must be blameless. As the steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine. No striker, not given to filthy lucre. You may notice that here a different word appears. I thought he was discussing elders based on verse 5, and yet now a word bishop appears. Is this in some way different? Is this two aspects of the same work and responsibility? Might I ask you to notice, this word is not presbyteros, it's episkopos. You may observe that that word simply means overseer. That is the basic thrust, that's the basic thought behind the character of its usage, an overseer. 
you may notice that that word occurs in some other passages, not the least of which, Acts 20, verse 28. As Paul addressed the elders of the church in Ephesus, so these were gentlemen that would have occupied that office we've discussed. It was to them, he said, "...take heed to yourselves and to the flock, over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood." Paul thus described the character of their overseership, episkopos. You probably can already begin to see linkages to some of these words. That word presbyteros, I hope that reminds you of Presbyterian. That whole church, the basic idea of it traces right back to the concept of presbyteros. Episcopos, I hope reminds you of Episcopalian another religious denominational body existent upon the earth, and they trace their thought back to Episcopos. Might we suggest that so far we've noticed the same context that described one in Titus chapter 1 also set forth the other. We are not talking about vastly distinct matters. As we consider further... There are other words in the New Testament used to describe the work and the responsibility of an elder. What about the word shepherd? In 1 Peter 5 verses 1 to 4, Peter, who was himself an elder, he made observation in those four verses about the nature, the powerful work of elders, and he set them forth as shepherds over the flock of God. What a lovely description. We noticed in a lesson not too many weeks ago now about shepherds in the Middle Eastern part of the world and the way that they would watch over their flocks with such love and concern and care. Well, we noticed here we have elders, men who have advanced to an age or at least a level of maturity such that they with care and knowledge of the Word can look for the souls of those under their supervision. As they do that, they oversee that congregation. In that overseership, they are described in, in a way like a shepherd. Now, the chief shepherd is Jesus. And these shepherds of whom we speak today are not in any way opposed or militant to Him. They serve beneath the chief shepherd. Maybe in light of all of that, you'll notice back to Titus 1, verse number 9. Speaking of these elders, in the midst of these influences that come upon them, Paul wrote and said, "...holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers." There's that phrase, sound doctrine again. These elders hold fast the faithful word. They don't legislate based on their opinion or their own selfish perspective. They legislate holding fast the faithful word and employing the sound doctrine of God. Perhaps, finally, you'll notice that those who are members of that congregation over which those elders then do labor, they are thus told to, in fact, respect them, to submit to them, 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 11 and 12, to obey them, Hebrews 13, verse 17, for they watch for our souls. One by one, all of these descriptions have brought us to that bottom consideration. Apparently, there were some congregations in the time of the Revelation such that their elders had failed in one way or another. 
The church in Ephesus comes immediately to mind, doesn't it? They had tried some who were in fact false, who claimed to be apostles but weren't, and this congregation found them to be wrong. And that was greatly commended. But that congregation had left its first love, and that was not commended. We notice that those elders of the church in Ephesus, the very ones that Paul had addressed in Acts chapter 20, Apparently, over the course of time, some problems and difficulties had arisen. May we hold up and encourage the elders, even as they seek to encourage us. It is a part of that plan for the church of our Lord until the end of time, for it to have elders. Our first word this morning has then been the consideration of elder, but it isn't the only one. What about another word? Another word found here in Titus, the opening chapter. It is a word that you'll notice comes before us in verse number 6. We read it a moment ago, but let's cast the spotlight on it again. Titus chapter 1, verse number 6. If any be blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of riot or unruly. Here we immediately observe that we find verses that set before us a set of qualifications of those men that could be elders. Between this chapter and, of course, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we find a little over 20 qualifications of a man that would be an elder. Of them, perhaps the one that has occupied as much discussion of, as any other has been the very phrase before us in verse number 6, having faithful children. That word children, clearly in English, is plural. Must he have at least two children? If a man has but one child and meets every other qualification, can he be appointed scripturally as an elder? May I submit to you that that question has no less than split congregations over the last 75 years. The thought of does this demand at least a man to have two biological children, will one suffice? I would invite us to give some thought to that question, at least for the next moment or two. First of all, as you look at the word, the word in Greek that's translated here, children, is techna. You'll notice I've written it with its English counterparts. You'll notice I've also tried to say some of the thoughts concerning it. First, we would agree it is accusative in its Greek character. That word is neuter, but it is plural. In the original language, it is plural. There is no question by anybody about that. The Greek language, much like English, makes a distinction between singular and plural. For instance, if you and I use the word boy, or we use the word boys, the latter is plural, the former is singular. Well, Greek also makes that same distinction. But let's look further you'll notice that there are many occurrences in Scripture in which that same word is used in a way that clearly is plural. For example, in 1 Samuel 1, verse 8, even in the Old Testament, there we have a listing in which we see the children of that adversary to Hannah. That other woman did have several children. Easy enough to understand it meant more than one. We also notice in Matthew 21, verse 28, as Jesus Himself spoke of a man that had two sons, same word in Greek, techna, and we appreciate again that it meant two. 
At least it meant more than one. Beyond that, might I ask you to notice, there appear to be many occurrences in which that same word is used with an emphasis that clearly is singular. Let's look at a few of them. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 15, 4, same word is utilized, and you'll notice I put in quotation marks, it's rendered son. It is not rendered plural. Another example, in 1 Chronicles 2, verse number 30, the word is utilized again clearly with an emphasis that does not necessarily have to be as many as two. It could have been only one. Another example, in Hosea 11, verse 1, and this one's especially illuminating. You and I remember that one's quoted in the New Testament. Out of Egypt have I called my son. When Joseph and Mary took the baby Jesus into Egypt to escape the persecution due to that evil king, Herod, we notice that passage was quoted and notice the word son, and Jesus was the only son Joseph and Mary had at that time. And yet it's the same word that appears. This word can be used with an emphasis that is but singular. Let's look even further. We notice in Matthew 22, verse number 24, having no children. An implication, of course, leads us to appreciate that there seems overwhelming biblical evidence that this word can be used with more latitude than just demanding a numerical value of two or more. It's clearly being used in the Bible in a variety of contexts and ways that assert that in some cases the emphasis is not on the number itself but on the other features that go along with it. Let's look even beyond that. In Genesis 21 verse number 7, even far back in the days of the Old Testament, we remember there and the question could easily be asked, how many children did Sarah have? We all know she only had one. In her old age, she bore one son, the son of promise, Isaac, to Abraham. And yet on that occasion, she asked this question, Shall I, who am old age, bear children? She used the word children in a way encompassing but only one. It would seem in light of all those things as we come near the bottom of that slide that the significance of this qualification of an elder taken from us in Titus 1 verse 6, is not on his biological number of children. One child will do just fine. But that child must be a child of faith. That child must have the characteristics that accord to a man as a leader of that family who could then serve appropriately as a gentleman who could serve as an elder over, of course, the house of God. There seems, again, that we've reached this conclusion with relative ease. As you and I think then about a man serving as an elder, these qualifications set before us the thought that he could have one child. But that one child, again, as well as other considerations would tell us, this qualifications on the whole, and it's the quality, not so much the quantity of the children, as long as there's at least one. Perhaps in light of those things, two words so far, and how interesting has been their discussion. What about yet a third word? This one also occurs in, of course, the Bible and has caused some difficulties. We might well begin at this time back in Isaiah chapter 7. 
the word is, of course, the word virgin. As you and I think about Isaiah 7, it seems as though that word is the principal matter that we remember about that chapter. The days of the long ago when King Ahaz was such that circumstances around him were not good, and yet God promised that he'd be delivered. And Israel on that occasion would be as well. In fact, God promised that a sign would be made available. Initially, Ahaz refused to ask for a sign, but then God promised one anyway. He said, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a child. The virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. There have been those who have looked upon that with a bit of question. And in fact, the Revised Standard Version of the Bible does not use the word virgin in that verse. It says, young woman. The young woman shall conceive and bring forth a son. Now, you and I would be quick to say there's nothing unusual about a young woman bringing forth a son. That happens all the time. But for a virgin to do it, that's an entirely different circumstance. And that requires miraculous activity, clearly. I wonder what should be a proper viewpoint toward it. That matter is easily settled, it seems, with the biblical's own commentary of itself. In Matthew chapter 1, that Isaiah passage is quoted almost verbatim. In Matthew 1, verses 23 to 25, and I would ask you to notice how that as Matthew quotes it, he applies it to Christ, and he says explicitly that Mary knew not Joseph until, again, after the birth of Christ. She was a virgin. And in so doing, fulfilling that prophecy and that passage found in Isaiah... There is no reason to question or doubt the thrust of that word in Isaiah 7.14. It really is the thrust of God making an initial prophecy about the virgin conceiving and bearing a son. To that, we might add, there appears to be yet another prophecy in Jeremiah 31 about something very similar. In verse 22 of that chapter, God on that occasion said, A woman shall compass a man. That is to say, she'll go around the usefulness on that occasion of the man. Well, you and I know that the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and it was by that means, Luke one thirty-five, that she became pregnant, and it was by that means that she, of course, ultimately brought forth the Christ into the world. The words of Scripture, sound doctrine, that soundness has touched so far this morning our study in light of elder our study in light of children, our study in light of virgin. Every one of those instances are words found in the Word of God. Maybe as we come near the close of that slide, might we say that in Matthew 1.23, the inspired writer said, God with us. And that's the thrust and meaning of that word Emmanuel. Maybe one final word and the lesson today will be yours. This other word has found occurrence frequently in these books of Thessalonians and Titus. Books that we've read again recently and certainly not, not very long ago. As you look at this word, the word I would ask you to consider is the word coming. The word coming, if you'd like to go ahead and look at the nature of its occurrence. Again, back to the book of 1 Thessalonians, please. In chapter 3, verse number 13... To the end, He may establish your hearts unblameable 
in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all His saints. The word coming seems to be such an innocent word. And when you and I read it and look upon it, we appreciate it. certainly identifies, in this case, Christ is coming in some way. And yet it's that very verse that has been utilized in a multitude of ways to teach the rapture. They say, look, there it is. He's returning with His saints at the end of this supposed period of time. But they simply fail to look with enough care at the context as well as the other passages in which that same word is utilized. Let me invite you to consider. I've listed the top of that slide a whole host of verses. 1 Thessalonians 2.19, 3.13, 4.15, 5.23, and on into verse 1 of 2 Thessalonians 2. As all of them employ a word like this word coming... There have been those that have made a great discussion about in the Greek word and what it signifies, and you and I no doubt are interested in it. But then they say this word is different than some other word, and thus there's two comings or there's three comings as the case may be. Let us allow the Word of God again to put all of these, and sometimes they're used interchangeably. Consider the following. There's no question that the Lord Himself will return. So many New Testament verses highlight the fact that that coming is a certainty. Although some may deny it, although some may live as though it will not happen, others in fact openly militate against it, the fact is the Lord will return. In Acts chapter 1 verses 9 through 11, on the very occasion of His ascension into glory, those angelic visitors said the same Jesus... Not a different being, the same Jesus that you have seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen Him go into heaven. That's about as abundantly plain as you and I can imagine it. The same being, the second member of the Godhead, will in fact return. The return that He shall, of course, undergo brings us to observe a few other passages. Jesus Himself made this statement, a statement that has been such a remarkable comfort in John chapter 14. That promise that the Lord made, let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again." Now that's again about as certain as you and I can imagine it. Jesus promised, He promised, that if He prepared the place, He would return. And thus, we will appreciate that maybe the initial thought of the word coming is as straightforward as, as it can be. Looking beyond that, you notice though that the thought of a rapture is by its very nature excluded. Turn over one chapter to 1 Thessalonians 4. Let's let the inspired apostle, the penman from heaven, if you please, tell us somewhat about these features. Beginning in verse 13 of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with Him." 
For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. For the Lord Himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. As Paul gave this inspired description of this coming, how did he describe it? It certainly isn't anything secretive. He described it as it would be accompanied by a shout. It would be accompanied by the voice of the archangel, and that's audible. He also described in verse 16 that it would be accompanied by the trump of God. This is something that every being on earth is going to know. There ain't going to be anybody that's going to be in any way absent or in any way unaware that it's occurring. Does it sound like a rapturous event? Surely not. We're told supposedly that's a secretive thing where God or rather the Son will appear and sweep away some who are His own and leave everybody else behind. From the biblical perspective, that's not found anywhere. We notice this coming as Paul here described it and set it forth is so easy for us to appreciate. You and I then can understand as Revelation 22 says it, even so, Lord Jesus, come quickly. We know there's coming a moment when He is coming in the clouds. And every eye shall see Him, Revelation 1, verses 5 through 7. Every eye will see Him. When He appears, the trump of God's going to sound, the voice of the archangel shall be heard, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Those who are dead in Christ, they will rise. Notice the word. Elevate, if you please. They will move up in the air, and there they will meet their Master. And they'll be taken off for the moment of judgment, and ever shall they be with the God of heaven. What a glorious moment. What an absolutely overwhelming thought. The Bible doesn't teach by the usage of this word coming, two comings, three comings, four comings, one more coming. That's it. May you and I with wisdom seek to be ready for it. As we close our lesson this morning, our four words have again highlighted the considerations of elder and how sweet the concept as the Bible presents it is. And we looked at the word children as a part of the qualifications and learned that one child, one faithful child is plenty sufficient. We then looked beyond that at that word virgin and finally the word coming and have found in every instance that the word the Holy Spirit chose to use conveys a great meaning, and men do disservice and injustice to the Word when they tamper with it. Didn't Paul, or rather didn't Peter, assert a word of warning in 2 Peter 3.16 to anybody who rests the words of Scripture? And that word rest is W-R-E-S-T. It means to pervert, to twist, to turn them around. Today, as we've studied these sound doctrine concepts, I trust that we have been edified and encouraged in light of the words of Scripture. Those words of Scripture include what God demands for us to respond to Him, to become His child. Are you a member of the body of Christ? Are you a Christian, faithful and devoted in your service? If you are, then may you remain that way till death. If you are not, though, why not begin that walk, that way of life today? 
the plan of salvation, you need to believe with all of your heart that Jesus is exactly who He said He was. Repent of your sins again as He demands. You notice that He demands you also confess His name as the Son of God and be baptized. And if we could be of assistance today, it would be our privilege. If you need to come back to your first love, that also could be done in just a few moments. You need to believe that God can and will forgive you. You need to repent of those sins again. You need to, of course, confess them to God. And you need to beseech the prayers of brethren, James 5.16. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man does avail much. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you. If today we could be of help to you, don't delay, but come even now while together we stand and sing.